0: This is a talk by Joel, titled, What Are Sacred Sciences?, recorded October 27th, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: The name of our organization is the Center for Sacred Sciences. So I thought we'd spend this morning talking about what do we mean when we say sacred science or sacred sciences? What are sacred sciences? And many people today think that the truths of science are verifiable through experiments, observations, and so forth, but that spiritual truths, or sacred truths, must be accepted on faith alone. This actually was not always the case. In the Middle Ages, when philosophy had not yet been separated from religion, there was a lot of interest in proving God and Uh, So forth. But as science, as we know it today, grew up and there was conflicts, there was sort of a compromise. And verifiable truth fell to the province of science and faith fell to the province of religion. And never the twain shall meet, at least some people think. What's interesting is that a lot of religious people uh, also accept this. And they don't try to verify the truths in their sacred scriptures. They take it as a matter of faith. You have to believe because it's the word of God. How do you know it's the word of God? Well, it says so in the scripture. So it's kind of a circular argument, but a lot of people are very happy with that. That it doesn't disturb them. And they're very content to have religion be a matter of faith and science be a matter of verifiable truth, so to speak. So a name like sacred sciences sounds like an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. How could you have a sacred science? What does that mean? Uh, First of all, when we talk about sacred sciences here we are not talking about religion as practiced by the masses of people around the world. We use sacred science to refer to religion as practiced by the mystics of all the great traditions. And you will find mystics in all the great traditions. So we want to be very careful that we make that distinction. Mystics often uh, are at odds with their own tradition. Although they tend to try to be good sons and daughters of their tradition. and They tend to say, we feel we have a deeper interpretation of what this tradition is about. But there are times in history when they have been very much at odds with their tradition. And there is a distinction. So we're not talking about all religions are the same. Everybody believes the same thing. We're just talking about the mystics. So then, in what sense could this be a science? Well, science, the word science, comes from a Latin root. Sire, to know, just simply means to know. And if you look up in Webster's dictionary, you'll find science in the broadest meaning is simply systematized knowledge. And Webster's even gives uh, examples like the science of boxing or the science of theology as being a, a systematized knowledge. Now, just taken at that broadest level, mystics certainly have bodies of systematized knowledge. Uh, that get passed on and refined and developed through various lineages and schools and uh, monastic orders and communities and so forth so in that sense in that broad sense it's a science but today in a modern times uh, really when we use science we mean the natural sciences biology chemistry physics Maybe the social sciences, too. We talk about sociology and anthropology. But generally speaking, when people say sciences prove this, they mean one of the natural sciences. So the question then is, are we justified in using this term science in that more restricted modern sense to apply to the teachings of the mystics? So I thought what we'd do this morning is we take a look at what are some of the similarities and then what are some of the differences, because there definitely are differences between natural science and mysticism. And then at the end of this, you can decide whether we're justified in saying this. So scientists are noted for identifying a specific problem to solve. They don't sit around usually talking about abstract questions of philosophy. There's some specific problem that they're interested in solving. Why do stars shine? What holds atoms together? Those kinds of things. But they do want to be able to solve these problems in terms of a fundamental understanding of the nature of reality. As broad and as deep as is possible, And this is actually a a subjective motivation of our scientists. What is reality? Here's how Einstein talks about this. And notice he talks about it even in religious terms. He said, You will hardly find one among the profounder sorts of scientific minds without a religious feeling. His religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. This feeling is the guiding principle of his life and work. It is beyond question, closely akin to that which has possessed religious geniuses of all ages. So it's interesting here. We're not just interested in coming up a lot of ad hoc theories. As a scientist, we want to find how they all fit together and what they're telling us about the deeper underlying nature of reality. Now, mystics really have, you could say, one fundamental problem they're interested in, and that's the problem of suffering. How can we free ourselves from suffering, and how can we attain true abiding happiness? Two sides of the same coin. But they also recognize that this solution comes from understanding the fundamental nature of reality. Here's what al-Ghazali says. He's a great Sufi. The Sufis are the mystics of Islam. Real knowledge consists in knowing the following things. What art thou in thyself, and from whence hast thou come? Whither art thou going, and for what purpose hast thou come to tarry here a while? And in what does thy real happiness and misery consist? If we don't know uh, the nature of reality, what's really going on here, we won't know how to free ourselves from suffering. I mean, just as as a mundane example, if you have a pain in your side and you're suffering and you don't know the cause of it, you don't know how to treat it. So it might be, you know, you ate uh, too much enchiladas last night, and you need a little acid, but maybe it's appendicitis. So it's very important. If it's appendicitis and you're just chopping down the tums, you could get, be in serious trouble if the appendix bursts and so forth. So the truth and the nature of reality is very important to our lives. So how do we solve this problem of freeing ourselves from suffering? That's the great question that the mystics want to answer. The natural scientist has theories or concepts about how the cosmos works. Formulate theories. An example is Newton's third law. To every action there is always opposed an equal reaction. This explains why when you fire a gun it kicks. Because there's one action there's uh, a reaction. You shoot off a rocket if you're standing on the ground nearby the ground shakes because The ground is reacting to the rocket going off. It explains why when you hit a billiard ball and it hits another billiard ball, this one goes this way and this one goes this way. This explains a whole lot of phenomena in our daily lives. It's a nice, good, succinct, natural law. Mystics have teachings relating to the cause of suffering, the fundamental cause of suffering and then various levels of that. You could say that mystics' teaching is basically that our suffering comes from ignorance of this fundamental nature of reality. And then you could go further and say mystics have fundamentally two propositions about this. One is that in reality, there is nothing but God or Brahman or Buddha nature or the great Tao or consciousness itself, or whatever term you want to use, and mystics of different traditions have different terms. They all refer to some underlying ultimate reality. And what mystics are saying, that's all there truly is. Here's an example. Here's a Hindu mystic Shankara. Brahman, that's their name for ultimate reality, is pure consciousness. The wave, the foam, the eddy, and the bubble are all essentially water. Similarly, the body and the ego are really nothing but pure consciousness. Because of the ignorance of human minds, the universe seems to be composed of diverse forms. It is Brahman alone. Now, here's a Hindu with this term Brahman. Here's Zen master Wang Po. Quite different tradition, and by the way, Buddhists you know and Hindus have over the ages have had lots of philosophical arguments and debates. but here's Huang Po mystic: Nothing is born, nothing is destroyed. Away with your dualism, your likes and dislikes, every single thing is just the one mind. Does that sound a little bit like Shankar in different terms? Here's the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. Everything stands for God and you see only God in all the world. And here's how the Sufi poet Rumi puts it in a poetic way. All pictured forms are reflections in the water of the stream. When you rub your eyes, indeed, all are God. So here's a fundamental teaching of mysticism. Of all mystics, not just Christian mystics, and not just Hindu mystics, and not just Buddhist mystics. Then the second proposition is that our delusion of being a separate, truly existing ego self, separate from some world of truly existing objects, is the cause of our suffering, the fundamental cause of our suffering. Here's Shankara again. Man's life of bondage to the world of birth and death has many causes. The root of them all is the ego, the first begotten child of ignorance. Here's the Christian author of The cloud of Unknowing. Every man has plenty of cause for sorrow, but he alone understands the deep, universal reason for sorrow who experiences that he is. The same thing, right? The ego, the sense of separate self, that you are some sort of individual. That is the deepest universal reason for sorrow. And here's the Sufi, Javad Nurbakash. As long as you are you, you will be miserable and impoverished. But when your self has passed away, you are the beloved, content and fulfilled. Well, I mean... This part isn't a big mystery. Where there's no self, there's no suffering. You know, uh, gongs don't suffer. We at least don't believe they suffer. You know, you can bang around. There's no self in any gong, so it doesn't suffer. So if it were true that we actually did not exist as we seem to exist, we were not individual ego selves and so forth. There would be no suffering. The other side of it is if we realized that we were this consciousness that is described in the traditions as love, as bliss, as joy, we wouldn't find happiness. We realize we are already happy from the get go. Okay, scientists have uh, laboratories they build in which to isolate phenomena so they can study them better. A good example is uh, oh, I remember this. From I don't know sixth or seventh grade it was the first I think description of a scientific experiment I ever heard in school and I was so impressed. It was uh, Walter Reed's discovery of the cause of yellow fever. Has anybody heard that story before? Is this was this just in my school? Okay. <laughs> uh, in the uh, turn of the century, the American troops were in Cuba. They've been in, in Cuba off and on for quite a while, and uh, they were coming down with yellow fever which is this mysterious illness, uh, something like malaria. So Walter Reed was an army doctor, and he developed this theory that the mosquitoes, local mosquitoes, were carrying this disease and infecting the the soldiers. So to prove it, he set up an experiment in kind of a laboratory of human beings. And he got a bunch of volunteers, and half of them were isolated. They lived in rooms full of mosquito netting and so forth, very carefully isolated And half of them volunteered to be uh, bitten by this Aedes aegypti mosquito, and the other half weren't. And sure enough, none of the volunteers who weren't bitten came down with yellow fever, and almost all the ones who were bitten did come down with yellow fever. So by this experiment, he isolated the phenomenon. He proved that, yes, indeed, the Aedes aegypti mosquito carries yellow fever. It's a marvelous example of a clear-cut experiment. So this is like a laboratory. He set up this laboratory where you could isolate the volunteers and so forth. Well, you know, mystics have laboratories. Their laboratory is their own body-mind. Here, for instance, what the Buddha says. In truth, my friend, I tell you that in this very body, mortal as it is, and only a fathom in height, but conscious and endowed with intelligence, there is the world, as well as its increase and its decline." And the road that leads to the transcendence of the world. So you've got everything you need right now. You are your own laboratory if you're a mystic. You are your own field of study. Whatever is arising in this body-mind is uh, what you're going to look at to discover this truth that mystics talk about. And here's an example from Shankara talking about how to isolate what they call the Atman, the true self, which is that Brahman, that pure consciousness, from all the phenomena that we mistake to be ourself. And in Hindu worldview, there are five categories of these, what they call coverings. There's the, the physical body, there are instincts, there's emotion, there's thought, there's um, bliss. Did I miss one. Anyway, those kinds of things that most of us do think well, that's me. I'm this body. Yes, I'm these thoughts. Oh, yeah, I'm these emotions. So here's what Shankara says about it. Wrapped in the five coverings, the Atman remains hidden as water of a pond is hidden by a veil of scum. A man must separate this Atman from every object of experience as a stalk of grass is separated from its enveloping sheaths. So this is really a practice where you treat your body and your body mind as your laboratory and you go look and whatever arises, it's, uh, you say, okay, Uh, is this me? And through various uh, study, you can see that it is, first of all, most importantly, all this stuff is impermanent. So you are looking for what is really me? And it's a question of looking, observing. Another way uh, to approach this, if uh, people say you can't prove God, mystics say you can prove God. And you'll find variations of this in various traditions. Proof of God goes like this. If you eliminate all objects from consciousness, what remains is God. And you can do this, again, as a kind of meditative practice. One of the ways that the meditation we did this morning, one direction you can go in that is to become more and more and more absorbed in some object and then finally let go of that object. It'll be like being in dreamless sleep. There's no phenomena arising. That's called samadhi uh, in the uh, Hindu and Eastern traditions. But there's a way to prove God experientially. Uh, instruments. Scientists create instruments so that they can observe phenomena in more detail. You know, so Galileo, he made his own telescopes, actually. He ground the lenses and then he could look up at the moon and then he could see craters and mountains and so forth, things you can't see with your naked eye. And mystics also develop instruments and they use their own minds and hearts and they turn their minds and hearts into instruments to be able to look at phenomena more closely and in more detail. So the two primary kinds of things are morality and meditation. Morality for mystics is not just a matter of being a good little boy or girl and going to heaven when you die. Morality is a kind of purification process. Here's again how Al-Ghazali talks about it. The aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of passion and resentment till like a clear mirror it reflects the light of God. The rust of passion and resentment here are self-centered desires and aversions that keep this delusion of self going. They keep driving the story of I. So when we interrupt that kind of conditioning, those habits fall away. Meditation is a way of training attention to be still, not to be caught up in thoughts and concepts and ideas, to be able to see and experience things nakedly, to be able to have insight, naked, direct insight, not what you think about the world and what it is, but you just experience it. Here's a wonderful example from uh, the Buddhist master Mahasi Sayeda. And he's describing meditating on impermanence. And this is a specific meditation after you've done this kind of concentration practice that we were doing this morning. Then you do what the Buddhists call Vipassana practice. And that is after you've stabilized your mind and you are able just to watch how all the phenomena of your experience arise moment to moment and disappear. It gives you a whole different experience of your reality. There's nothing really solid in there. Our sensations arise and pass away. The sights in our visual field are constantly arising and passing away. Sounds are arising and passing away. Our thoughts are rising and passing away. Our feelings, our emotions are rising and passing away. Everything is arising and passing away. That is our true experience. Our minds think, oh, well, there must be solid things out there. Oh, well, my car must still be parked on the street, for instance. But that's not your experience. That's what your mind is telling you. It's a useful uh, device, it's useful fiction, but it's a mental construct. It is not your naked experience. This is what this meditation is trying to get us to, a naked experience. Now, here's the way he describes it. When engaged in noticing continuously the dissolution of the objects, he reflects, even for the wink of an eye, nothing lasts. One did not realize this before. As it ceased and vanished in the past, so will it cease and vanish in the future. Then the meditator sees nothing to depend on and becomes, as it were, weakened in mind as well as body. But he should not despair. This condition of his is a sign of insight. So this is a practice of going and observing phenomena in fine detail, just the way a scientist would want to, and seeing things you never noticed before when you slow the mind down, when you pay attention. Uh, Here's the big one. Verification. Scientists have theories and these theories, they say, can be verified through observation and experiment. This is fundamental to science. Richard Feynman, a great American scientist, said this is the whole key. This is the definition of science. It's true if it's verifiable. If you can verify it, it's true and we don't, we don't care who said anything, who said what, uh, how great a scientist, we don't take anybody's word for it. We go out, we perform experiments, and we verify. One example of this is um, in the uh, 1880s, early 1880s, Arthur Young proved that light was not a particle phenomenon the way Newton had thought it was, but was a wave phenomenon. He had a simple little experiment. He projected light through a little hole onto a screen, and instead of Having a, a round, crisp edge pattern, which if it was particles going through, it would have. It was ringed, shaded, light and dark, light and dark. And that only comes from an interference effect, and you have to have waves to have an interference effect. So he showed that light was waves. He proved it. So he settled that dispute was light waves or particles through an experiment? But mystics have teachings, and mystics insist. That their teachings be verified by your own personal experience and insight, which is quite different than a lot of other kinds of spiritual leaders who insist you accept this on faith because it's the Word of God. Listen to the Buddha, for instance. Accept not what you hear by report, accept not tradition. Do not hastily conclude that it must be so. Do not accept the statement on the grounds that it is found in our books nor on the supposition that this is acceptable, nor because it is the saying of your teacher. And then he goes on to compare what a mystic should do, is be like a goldsmith who tests the metal on a touchstone. So you test the teachings. Here's Shankara, the great Hindu mystic we've been quoting from. From the lips of your teacher, you have learned the truth of Brahman as it is revealed in the scriptures. Now you must realize that truth directly and immediately then only will your heart be free of any doubt. And here's the uh, author of the Christian Cloud of Unknowing. You will not really understand all of this until your own contemplative experience confirms it. So this is quite different than saying you must believe this because it's written in the scriptures. In fact, from a mystic's point of view, if you settle for mere belief, that is your obstacle. That is not what frees you from suffering. You have to have your own realization. You might believe everything I'm saying, everything all these great mystics are saying, but if you don't go out and do the practice and find out for yourself, it won't do you any good. So belief is important in a certain sense, just like if you want to take a science course at the U of O, and you walk in the door the first day and there's a bunch of scribble up there, you don't know what it means, but you have faith that your teacher knows what it means, and that by the end of the year, you're going to know what it means. So, if you think your teacher's a total crackpot, you turn around and walk out the door. You have some belief in faith. Well, the mystics say the same thing. But ultimately, if you just say, well, my teacher says this, it's not going to do any good. It's going to become an obstacle. So, here's a couple of ways you can verify some of these teachings. Here's the way you can verify that there is no separate self. It's through a practice called inquiry. Ramana Maharshi, a great Hindu, describes it. If one inquires... For whom is there bondage and liberation? It will be seen they are for me. If one inquires, who am I? One will see that there is no such thing as the I. You have to make the this inquiry. It's very similar to that other practice of separating out the Atman from experience. Mystics have a challenge for you. What do you think you are? Well, you go observe closely, pay attention. You think you're your body? Which body? The one when you were six months old? The one when you were 16? The one when you were 36? Fifty-six if you... You know, scientists tell us that all the cells of the body change every seven years. But even more closely, is there even a body there? What is really the body made up of? It's these sensations that are rising and passing away, rising and passing away in consciousness all the time. But am I arising and passing away? Do I have a sense that I'm arising, and passing away? No. And what about when I dream? So I, my dream, I'm a bird. I have a totally different body. I wake up and I think, oh well, but my body was lying in the bed all the time. But again, that's not my experience. That's just my thoughts. What mystics say is, you think there's a true referent to the word I? Go look and see if you can find it. If you want to verify that there's nothing but God you can do this through surrendering that ego self through practicing devotion devotion to some form God appears to you in some form it could be Christ it could be the form of a book uh, like the Torah or the Quran it could be a, a guru if you were in India whatever some form or just a presence a sense of feeling of a presence and then you Start turning your life over. You stop living in a self-centered way and you start living selflessly. And ultimately, you are giving up that false sense of self and ultimately you find that you're not even really different from that form that you are surrendering to. Here's how Meister Eckhart describes it. Go completely out of yourself for God's love and God comes completely out of himself for love of you. And when these two have gone out, what remains there is a simplified one. So on all these scores, scientists have theories. Mystics have teachings. Scientists have laboratories. Mystics say, well, your body and mind is your laboratory. Scientists make instruments so that they can look at things more closely. Mystics train their hearts and minds so they can look at things more closely. Mm-hmm. And scientists verify their uh, theories through observation and experiment, and mystics verify their teachings through observation and experiment. So in all these ways, I think we're justified in talking about a science of the sacred. But let's spend one last little bit here looking at some of the differences, because there are some differences. Some people make a big deal out of the fact that science uses highly technical language, especially mathematics and the hard sciences, the natural sciences, and they think that mystical teachings are all emotional and uh, poetic and so forth. And there certainly are great poets uh, expressing teachings uh, in a very poetic and emotional way. But uh, also, I tell you something, if you want to go in there and check out some of these Tibetan books, you're going to find the language so technical, you're not going to understand it. You're going to have to go to school for a year or two. go through all the arguments between the various schools and the all the kinds of emptiness you can identify and this is that. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> and as for mathematics, <laughs> uh, let me just say this, at the center we're working on it and if you're interested more in that you can talk to Tom McFarlane about it. He can already show you how to express uh, Narga Juna, a great Buddhist uh, mystic's four-cornered argument in mathematical formulation. And this is one of the things we like to work on is Exploring mathematics, seeing what is the root of mathematics and how you could express all the teachings of these mystics in a mathematical language, which is the same language that you can express physics in. So that would be kind of interesting to be able to read all this stuff mathematically. I mean, not for everybody here. I'm just an amateur of it, you know. Uh, But it still would be interesting. Uh, Some say that scientific results are objective, public, and repeatable. And mystical results are subjective, and private, and not repeatable. Now, this raises a whole interesting question about subjective and objective, especially since mystics claim that the distinction between them is imaginary to begin with and all that. But even really from uh, a more mundane level, all experience is fundamentally subjective. I mean, I only know what you're seeing by your verbal report. So if we're both looking at this diffraction effect in that light experiment, and then I see these rings, and the only way that I know that you are is because you tell me, oh yes, I see these rings too. So I compare your verbal report with my private experience of seeing the rings. And so we seem to agree. So modern philosophers don't really talk about objectivity anymore. They talk about a high degree of intersubjective agreement meaning that all these people get together and they all, you know, are giving the same report. And so uh, there's a high level of intersubjective agreement. Well, in a relative sense, mystics' realization is more subjective. We can't produce a, uh, an experiment like that and, and show a diffraction effect. You can't look in the mind of a mystic and see realization or enlightenment or something. But when you compare their reports one to another across cultures, across religions, across traditions, there is an exceedingly high degree of intersubjective agreement. And I just want to read you some so you can see for yourself. Here's Zen Master Wang Po again. A perception, sudden as blinking, that subject and object are one, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. And by this understanding, you will awake to the truth of Zen. Here's Ananda a Hindu. She writes, Direct perception of that means seer, seeing, seen are realized as modifications created by the mind, superimposed on the one all-pervading consciousness. Seer, seeing, seen, subject and object are one. Here's Ibn Arabi, great Sufi. He sees God as being that which he sees, Perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. And here's the Christian mystic Rosie Brook. What we are, that we behold. And what we behold, that we are. Subject and object. For in this pure vision, we are one life and one spirit with God. So, they're all saying the same thing. They're giving a report on their realization. They're using a quite uh, technical language about it. It's not just "oh, I was in bliss and God was one and da da da." No, there's no difference between subject and object. There's no difference between the seer and the seen, the experiencer and the experience. There's only that <coughs> one underlying fundamental reality. Is everybody getting this? I got to tell you something. When I uh, was on my spiritual path, and I was start off as a great skeptic. I mean, I was a hard-nosed materialist, realist, you know. And one of the things that most impressed me, because I did read across traditions, I kept running up against the same thing from different times, different places, different, uh, you know, cultures. What's the method in this madness? I mean, if you take each one individually, isolated, they're crazy, bananas. But how come there's this really high degree of intersubjective agreement? So, then the last question is, though, how do these mystics know this? That subject and object are one. And this is where we do come to the big, big difference between science and mysticism. Science deals in theory. Science aims to construct theories about how the cosmos works. Theories are made of concepts and ideas. Theories are inherently unstable and changeable, because ideas are. Mm-hmm. This is a big myth a lot of people have about science, that science is keeps building, mm-hmm. getting closer and closer to the truth. In point of fact, I mentioned this experiment by Arthur Young about showing that light is really a wave phenomena and not a particle phenomena. Well, quantum mechanics, modern physics, says no, that's not true. Actually, light is something that transcends this distinction between particle and wave. Very mysterious how that could be. What could be neither a particle nor a wave, both a particle and a wave, and so forth, it starts to sound like Nargajuna. actually. Not this, not that, not, not this, and so forth. But in any case, what was true uh, you know, last year is no longer true today in science. What was true about time and space in Newton's time is not true in Einstein's worldview. But what mystics claim is something else. Mystics claim there is a way of knowing which is not conceptual, not theoretical, which, strictly speaking, is not even experiential in the sense of experience comes and goes and passes, and also that our experience is almost always defined by subject-object relationships, so I'm experiencing something. So it's neither experiential nor is it theoretical. And in all these traditions you'll find they have some word for this. Uh, popularly in this culture now it's called enlightenment or realization. Uh, among the Sufis they call it marifa, as an Arabic word. Uh, every tradition has their own technical word for this uh, gnosis, which we call it here. That comes from an ancient Greek word. Say direct, immediate perception or apprehension. Perception isn't even good because that designates a seer and a scene or something of reality. Sometimes it's defined as knowledge through identity. That is eternal, absolute, and beyond doubt. <clears throat> That's what the mystics claim. Now, you know, to our modern scientific ears, that sounds outrageous. It's so radical, it's unbelievable. What do you mean there's some knowledge that's absolute, eternal, beyond doubt and so forth? And you know what mystics say? We don't ask you to believe us. Like any good scientist, they say, verify it for yourself. Verify it for yourself. And I think I'd just like to close this by telling a little story uh, about Galileo. When Galileo invented his telescopes and he looked through them and he saw the moon and he saw these craters and mountains on the moon, he was very surprised because the worldview at that time came down from Aristotle. And in that worldview, all the heavenly bodies were these pure crystalline spheres. They didn't have craters and, and stuff, you know. And this was just the accepted wisdom of the establishment And it was rational, you know, and this wasn't just accepting something that's written in scripture. Aristotle was a very rational philosopher. And so all the great academics of the time, the doctors and so forth, they accepted Aristotle. And Galileo said, there are craters and mountains and stuff on the moon. And they said, it can't be, because Aristotle says it can't be. And he said, well, look through my telescope, and they refused to look. (laughs)
0: so there are a lot of people out
1: there who say that about mystics it can't be true and so forth well mystics have a telescope that is our practices that is our meditations our morality and all these practices and if you don't want to look what can we do if you want to look there is a telescope available so that's why we call our organization the center for sacred sciences do you have any questions or comments or uh, go ahead Wesley I yeah, see you I fighting <laughs> I'm scratching my nose. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, Blue. The Dalai Lama was at a conference of representatives from other religions and they were they were talking and um, someone said well it seems like you know there there really aren't that many differences between, say, Christianity and Buddhism because the, it sounds like the great void is God. And the Dalai Lama said, no, that's a mistake. There, that's a very important difference between the two. And I have never really understood that because it seems to me like that's true, that the great void is what the Christian mystics are calling
1: God. Uh, I, I can't speak about what the Dalai Lama said because I just don't know enough, you know, to comment on it. I'll make this presumption though that emptiness in uh, Buddhism and particularly the lineage the Dalai Lama comes from, which is a quite philosophical lineage, has a very precise philosophical meaning. It does not mean some sort of vast void. It means the emptiness of any inherent existence to objects or to a subject. So. This gong is empty of any inherent existence in Buddhist terms. It doesn't refer to some big space where things are rising or something like that. you see what I mean? So then the best way to understand what this means is to think of, uh, let's say you're dreaming now. And you're dreaming that I'm holding up this gong. Well, in the dream, you think there's a real gong objectively existing out here. When you wake up from your dream and you look back, you realize that the gong in the dream was empty of any inherent existence. It was just made of consciousness. It, there was nothing out there, right? Just an appearance without anything substantial behind it. So this is the most technical meaning of emptiness in Buddhism. Now, and it is true, that is somewhat different from uh, the way sometimes emptiness is bantered about by people and whatnot. However, I would be interested in sitting down to have a conversation with the Dalai Lama about what is God, because they say that the emptiness of everything is the true nature of everything, you see. So that's why emptiness comes out as a true nature, but it's not different from the phenomena. Well, as Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, said, one of the attributes of God is that we do not attribute thingness to God. Now, God is the fundamental nature of everything, according to these mystics, right? So, the fundamental nature of this is God, the God. But, when we talk about God, we're not talking about a thing, like some other thing. What we're talking about, if the fundamental attribute of God is that we don't attribute thingness to God, then we don't attribute thingness to this. So, this is empty of any inherent thingness. So, it amounts to the same thing, I think, that the Buddhists are saying. It's a more roundabout way of getting there. But you will find not just in Sufis, but the early Christians, uh, uh, Dionysus, the Arapaigate and so forth, you know, uh, speak this way. Yes? Um, don't sometimes Christians uh, make like a distinction between God and Godhead too? Yes, yes indeed. Mystics like a Meister Eckhart certainly do. So the God And the the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are aspects of God that allow us to think about God, but they are not the Godhead itself, which is beyond all thought and beyond what we can think about. Also, let me just come back to this. This is an important thing to why we make such a point of this distinction between exoteric or, or ordinary Orthodox religions and mystics. If you say, well, there are not that many differences between Christianity as a religion and Buddhism as a religion, there are actually quite a lot of differences. But if we're going to talk about the mystics of these traditions, we're narrowing it down. We're not claiming that that Christianity and Buddhism are really essentially the same. We're saying the mystics of these religions are teaching essentially the same thing. In the the terminology of their religion, but it comes down to the same thing. Yes, Demi.
0: What is it about the dream analogy that is not literal? Why is it an analogy?
1: Actually, it's not. It is little. It's just easier to talk about it. Rather than have you stumble over that one, let's start with making an analogy. There are actually practices in Tibetan Buddhism where that is the practice. You try to see that there's no difference between waking life and dreaming life. And, and this is another common metaphor you'll find in all traditions <coughs> that this is a big dream. I mean, in Judaism and uh, Sufism and so forth, this is uh, another cross-cultural teaching. It's a little bit like if you go to the movies and they have dream sequences in the movies. Do you know what I mean? The main character's having a dream and the music gets wooey and they do some distorting <laughs> of the lens and you know. And you can tell the character's dreaming, right? And then huh, the character wakes up and looks around. Now you can tell the character's awake, right? So it's not that you can't tell the difference of dreaming and waking life. But what is the fundamental difference between They're all made of light forms on a screen. There's no fundamental difference at that level. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> so it's not that we can't distinguish between when we're dreaming and when we're awake, but if you want to talk about what's the fundamental nature of all this phenomenon, well, light forms on a screen. Yes?
0: Individualism and self.
1: I'm Isn't sorry, like start again?
0: Individualism ah. or, and self. Ah. Is a tool that we seem to need to get through this, this life, even though it is not an essential part of us. We realize that. But there are individual choice making. I mean, some people make very good choices, some others make very bad choices. And that is, a, that is a, an instrument that we use of this individualism.
1: Not as an instrument that we use, it's delightful. It's part of the fun of being alive, isn't it?
0: Yes.
1: Right. So it's like a movie. You know, we can go see a movie and you and I can go have coffee afterwards. And we can talk about the choices the character had to make. And were they good choices or not or this or that. You know what I mean? Right. And it's delightful. It's wonderful. It's not that we don't see and understand characters and differences and choices and all that. But we don't lose track of the fact that it's just a movie. And this is the difference of whether we enjoy it or not. This is, again, you know, so simple. It's another easy thing to see. If we're going to see Jurassic Park, if those of you like that kind of movie, part of why we go to see the movie is we enjoy being scared. We pay good money at the box office to walk in there. So, um, what's his name? Director. Spielberg. Spielberg, who's marvelous at this, can pull all our strings, orchestrate all our emotions, and send us on this wonderful trip where we're terrified because the dinosaur is chasing the, the kids, and then there are these whimsical little scenes with the kids and the peaceful dinosaurs eating, and it's all magical, you know. This is why he's such a great director. He just puts you through all the emotions that you want to experience. Sadness when someone dies, and this and that, you know, everything, which we love to experience. And we enjoy it because it's a movie. When it happens to us in life, though, we don't. <laughs> we suffer. If we knew it was a movie, we would enjoy it. We don't want to get rid of individuals in that sense, or what makes you unique. The Sufis, I think, have the most beautiful way of putting this. Every thing, every object, every form, every appearance is a divine self-disclosure. It's divine. It's God saying, look what I can do. Look what I can do. So if you're trying to get rid of anything here, you're trying to get rid of God. You're trying to stifle God. God's a great artist, a dancer, a musician. It's understanding the true nature of it. Understanding the true nature. And this, even mystical traditions, you know, fall prey to this kind of dualism. The early Buddhism, I don't know what the early Buddhism was like, but the way it uh, is often taught, is very dualistic. There's samsara and there's nirvana. And you cross the ocean of samsara to get to nirvana, some state, you know. But then you have corrective teachings come along. So the Mahayana say, no, no, samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. And Tibetans say, if you're trying to throw away samsara, you're throwing away precious jewels. None of this is about anti-anything except anti-ignorance. That's the only thing we have to eliminate, ignorance. Nothing else has to be eliminated. I've forgotten one Buddhist master said, you know, this is the whole thing. If you see the world through eyes of delusion, it's a place of suffering. If you see it through the eyes of awakening, it is nirvana itself.
0: Perspective.
1: <laughs> now, it is true. When we do certain practices, they're experiments. See, this is why I like to emphasize It's just like a... Uh, A scientist might do. A scientist eliminates certain things for a while in order to isolate phenomena. Do you know what I mean? You might want to take some, I don't know, little ascetic practice like uh, eliminate candy for Lent. Now, you're not doing it for the reason that you're going to get brownie points. You're doing it so you can study the compulsive craving for candy and how your mind thinks, if I could only get a piece of candy, I would be happy. And then how this isn't true. So it is true that mystical uh, practices have limitations and things and forms and, you know, it's a discipline. But they're all about, just like a scientist, they're all about isolating certain phenomena and being able to see them. They're not about, oh, your self is bad. You've got to get rid of that bad self. There's no self there to get rid of, actually. That's what we're trying to see. I don't know if that's helpful at all. Now, so, finally. He couldn't, really, he couldn't hold it no, down any longer. No, now, but now he feels better because other I don't people went first. Say anything. No, go ahead, Wesley.
0: <laughs> you really want me to ask you? You're
1: my Ananda. You. I need you, Wesley. Speak up.
0: Um, so, really, you're God playing Joel, and George is God playing George. Is that right?
1: Well, I'd rather say right? God is playing Joel, and God is playing George, and God is playing you, and God is playing flowers, and a uh, microphone, and, and everything.
0: So, I mean, so we worry about losing our individual self. You know, we say, oh, gee, I don't want to lose my self, my individuality, what's going to happen to it? But actually, you know, that's, that's God playing me. I mean, there's no way, there's nothing to be lost, really
1: except the delusion that it isn't God playing you. <laughs> that's really, that's true. That's true. Look, the truth, the reality, I mean, this makes just common sense. It has to be the truth now, the reality now, right? I mean, it's really, really the truth, and really, really the reality. The reality of our experience. What is the reality of our experience now? Right now, if it's true what the mystics say, that everything is God, then everything is going on right now must be God. So the, the only real question asked, perhaps, or let me put it this way, the question I asked myself when I first came across this teaching reading Meister Eckhart, he said, just that thing, everything is God, everything you see stands for God, and I, see, I'm a very practical minded person, so I pick up a pillow, and I said, I don't see God, what is he talking about? But then I asked the question, how come I don't see God? I took him literally, you know? So how come, it drove me nuts, how come he looks at this and he sees God, I look at it, I see just an old pillow. I did that, it became a burning question of my path with everything. I was determined to get to the bottom of it. One way to talk about mysticism is to say it's not a matter of finding some truth, going someplace and finding something. It's a matter of lifting the veils that hide the truth that is here right now. It's not a matter of accumulating new knowledge or new skills even. We want skills in order to be able to look just like scientists want laboratory skills. But ultimately, it's a question of removing. Removing our delusion. Being able to get to the bottom of things. You know, in some ways, mystics are more empirical than scientists. Mystics want to know what is the reality prior to the rising of any thought, any theory, any concept, anything you could think or say about things. What is that naked experience? Simone Weil said it beautifully, Christian mystic of the 20th century. A truth that's been forgotten is that religion is about seeing. I know, is that helpful?
0: Everything Religion is <laughs> about Seeing. Seeing. See
1: yeah oh you know, I like not just with sin, and oh I'm no, like, oh my no. <laughs> Some religions about sin But mystics are religion's about sin
0: Yes in a way it seems like everything that we've been experiencing here or talking about like dreams and etc is could all be labeled belief that we're dealing with beliefs. Aligned to that, it's interesting to me that there there are certain basic concepts that we all have, we all share, uh, like uh, happiness, love, spirituality, suffering, and we all have a sense of these, but we have radically different definitions of what they are, beliefs about what they are. If you try to start talking about what love is or what spirituality is or, <coughs> or write whole books and fight wars about these things.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think you're right. But from a mystic's point of view is that um, this is our problem. What we have are lots of ideas and theories and, and beliefs. We don't have truth. And that's why they keep pointing us beyond ideas and theories. And they we
0: feel we have, I mean, each of us has a sense of their truth. But we... Could argue all day about our
1: differences. Well, that's the point. And look, debate and argument is, has its place in life. That's part of the joy of life. And this is the one way that teachings do get refined. You know, <coughs> all over the East and the West. They had these great debates, you know, and the teachings come out of that. But ultimately, this is one of the differences between mystics and you know other forms of religion. Ultimately, it's about you've got to get beyond belief. You've got to get beyond Scripture. You've got to get beyond even the teachings. The highest teachings in the world are going to become an obstacle for you if you cling to them as though they were the truth. That's why the Buddhists say, you know, the teachings are just fingers pointing to the moon. And if you mistake the finger for the moon, you're in deep doo-doo. Don't mistake the finger for the moon. We are frightened to let go of our beliefs, actually. You know, we let go of our beliefs, we start letting go of ourselves and and the world we live in and everything, because that's all it is. So it's not easy to just say, you know, do it. That's why there are all these arduous practices. But it's possible. And that's really all a mystic can say. It's a a verbal report, a testimony. It is possible. I'm here to say it is possible. The rest is up to you. Um. I have a question, though. What would the mystic say if he were like um, talking like that, and everybody,
0: you know, um, trying to see his way and everything, and a bomb explodes, and about half the assembly dies? Hmm. What would he say to the other half of the assembly? What, what's the
1: delusion there? What's the thing you have to separate your mind from? Well, I would say to the other half of the assembly, "Hey, we better help these people who are injured from this bomb. Let's." Break off the teaching here. Let's go get some bandages. Uh, can you call 911? Who's going to do the hot water? That's what I would do. But uh, this is the problem of immense suffering. Instead of trying to answer that myself, let me recommend the book to you. We have the no library. It's called An Interrupted Life. It's by a woman named Eddie Hillisum, who died in Auschwitz. And it's the story of her spiritual path uh, in that period as the Nazis were closing in, rounding them up, and taking them off to a concentration camp, and then finally Auschwitz. And so, I think that will help answer your question. Uh, we're not talking about becoming some sort of Stoics who just ignore the suffering around us. But we are talking about, in spite of even that, be able to appreciate and be grateful for life. To say yes to all of life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, do me a favor, read that book. And if you want to bring it up again, we're just getting a little late, and that's a big, big topic. What was, yeah. that,
0: what was that book called?
1: An Interrupted Life by Eddie Etty, E-T-T-Y Hillisum, H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. I I think it's a poor title. I would have titled it Answer to Auschwitz.
0: That's
1: what I would have thought. All right, it's been kind of a long morning. Let's bring the formal part to a close. You're welcome to stick around, check out the library, have some tea. Oh, I don't remember. There's cake in the refrigerator. You've got to get the cake out of the refrigerator and eat it. Jennifer drilled this into my mind this morning. We're always doing this. You know, we have something in the refrigerator, we forget to take it out. Uh, somebody left it at her mother's house. So it's, uh, I don't eat sweets. So it's too big for her to eat. So please take it out. So till we see you again, peace to you all.